Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis Mi'ilah, the laws of the prohibition of misappropriation, trespassing, benefiting from holy temple funds or objects. And we're learning the many, many details of the application of this law. We learned to begin with that this falls into two general categories. It could be Koche Mizbeach, sacred objects of the altar, sacrifices. And we learned the application of Mi'ilah and sacrifices in great detail. It could be Koche Bede Kabayis, temple fund objects, something donated to the upkeep fund of the temple. So now he says, Echad HaMagdish, in Perik Hamishi chapter 5, whether one sanctifies or consecrates the bed to the upkeep fund of the Holy Temple. Dovor Horoi, something fit. Lechazek HaBedek, to use for upkeep. For example, the kind of material he donates is the kind of material they need. Kigain, for example. What would they need in the Holy Temple for upkeep? Eben, a stone. They need stones. A keda or a beam. They need beams. So the material he donates is the exact material which can be used in actuality. A, for example, another case. What if somebody consecrates and donates to the altar? I'm sorry. What if somebody consecrates and donates to the upkeep fund something which is fit for the altar, a kosher, live, sacrificable animal? I think I made up that word. For example, if somebody consecrates sheep, or doves, but he consecrates it not as a sacrifice, but to the temple fund. Or vice versa. If somebody consecrates to the altar, something that they need for the upkeep fund. For example, Evan. A stone, the crater, or a beam. And what does he do with the stone or beam? He consecrates it to the upkeep fund. I'm sorry, he consecrates it as a sacrifice. You can't sacrifice stones. You can't sacrifice beams. A, or another scenario. He consecrates both to the altar fund as well as the upkeep fund. Objects that are not fit for either fund. You can't use these in order to upkeep the holy temple. And you also can't sacrifice them. They're not fit for either. They're not beams and they're not kosher animals that are sacrificed. What would be an example of neither? Again, for example, if somebody consecrates chickens. Chickens were never used for sacrifices in the base of Migdash. And chickens cannot be used for the upkeep fund. There's nowhere where they need chickens. Or vitsir, fish brine, a karka, or real estate. All of these have value because they can be sold. Because you can sell a chicken. You can sell fish brine. You can sell real estate. Even if he consecrated a big manure company. Manure costs a lot of money. It's a big business. A offer or dirt, a apron or ashes. These are not very respectable objects that one would think of donating. Nevertheless, they have value. What is the norm? The norm is that when someone donates to the temple fund, they sell it and utilize its money. When somebody donates to the sacrifice fund, they sell it and buy a sacrifice with it. Therefore, if somebody makes inappropriate use of any of the above, and we learn that Mi'ilah is both categories, upkeep fund and, temp- and sacrifice fund, then Mi'ilah applies to all of the above. From the moment they were sanctified, until those objects which can be redeemed are redeemed. Obviously, once they're redeemed, they revert back to profane or mundane property. So here we have the overall information about Mi'ilah in the general and sacrifice fund. Now he goes on to say, Kol any sacred objects which were donated to the upkeep fund, together with items which were donated to the sacrifice fund, and somebody used both of them for personal use. The problem is we know we need a certain minimum amount of volume. So he used a little of this and a little of this. These two funds could combine together for this one person to violate this mitzvah. And if altogether he violated the value of a pruta, the lowest form of currency coin, Moal is considered Mi'ilah, so you can actually combine the two funds for violation. Gimel, another example of combination law, what if he ate, and he gave his friend to eat, he benefited anyhow, he had his friend benefit, he lost his eating, his consumption, and the consumption of his friend, and his, they both and all combine for this violation, and if the entire benefit from temple funds, one form or another, was the pruta, was the currency of the value of the pruta, he actually has transgressed this mitzvah, so here we see that the combination laws are quite lenient and liberal, anything and everything can combine, now he tells us a fascinating law, even more lenient and even more liberal, Mila can combine, for a long time, which means ordinarily a mitzvah has to be chikchak. 
For example, you're eating matzah. On Pesach, it says you have to finish uh, within a certain within a certain limit. You violate a, a transgression, it has to be within a certain limit. If that time goes by, then you lose the continuity. Not Mila. Mila combines for a long time. He benefits from the sacred. And without knowing that he did this accidentally. Many years later, he does the same thing, but nobody ever educated him in the middle. Because Mila, in this case that we speak of, is inadvertent. from the They can combine now and many years later. Years apart, these two acts can combine to the value of a puta umal, and he transgresses Mila, and he has to bring the offering and pay the fifth, and so on. Now we know that real estate in Torah law has a special place. In general, real estate is unique. A Mila only applies to that which is severed, separated from the earth. If somebody has benefit from real estate, from earth, from land, that was donated to the temple fund, or something attached to the land, Mila does not apply. Even if he did damage to that real estate. Ketzad, for example. If somebody plows the field that belongs to the temple fund, or somebody plants, you have no business plowing and planting in fields that belong to the temple fund. Nevertheless, as it relates to Me'ila, Potter is exempt from the mitzvah of Me'ila. He's obviously doing wrong, but he's not violating Me'ila. Not only Abok of however, if he took earth, benefits from this earth, or dust, and harms the field, Mo'al, he now has trespassed. Why? Because the dust is portable. It's not attached to the ground. Hadosh bisdei hegdish mo'al. If somebody who threshes in a consecrated field, he violates Me'ila, there are various versions of words here because the dust helps the field and he benefited from the dust and he harmed the field but again the key is that it's not attached what if he plowed a field of hegdish in order to have the dust rise in order to benefit the grass that he placed there and he then took the grass mall he violated if somebody decided to move in to a cave belonging to the temple fund or he's getting shade in the shade of a tree belonging to the temple fund even though he has pleasure he benefits he does not violate if somebody concentrates consecrates a built house somebody donates a house that's all built up if somebody dwells in it he does not transgress the mitzvah of but the other example is if somebody consecrates wood and stones and somebody goes and builds a house from it now he took the wood and stones belonging to the holy temple Moal, he now violates commission's word as we will explain so if he donates a house and he lives in the house he doesn't violate but if he donates stones and wood and he builds a house here he's utilizing the portable objects not the real estate objects something which grows on property belonging to Hegdish, and Me'ila does apply case, for example. Hegdish Sadev, somebody sanctified a field to the temple fund, and this field produced grass, herbs. Elon, he sanctified a tree, but it produced fruits. Clearly, the mitzvah of Me'ila does apply. But if somebody sanctifies an empty pit and then it fills with water, Hegdish Ashba, if somebody sanctifies a garbage dump, that fills with garbage, and garbage has value, and now it has doves. But where did these come from? They're not from the consecrated. They didn't grow. They came from the outside. The Ainon Gidule Hegdish. They didn't grow in the Hegdish. They came to the Hegdish. Ain Mailim Bohem. There's no Mila. The Chain and so also Hazebel, a dung heap. Vaperesh, waste in a dung heap. Shabachatzar Hegdish in the courtyard belonging to Hegdish. Lainan in Mailim We should not benefit it because it belongs to Hegdish. But Mila doesn't apply. Oma Yasubah, what do you do? You machru, let it be sold. It has value. The Yiplu Gemayim Ladishka. And let the money be brought into the temple fund office. Mayon Shu Yetzim, he takes the Hegdish. What if a well, a brook, a fountain flows forth from a Hegdish piece of land? Also, land is by Mayon Shu Yetzim, one may not benefit from the water that comes from it into the field. But somebody does, he does not violate Mila because it's not the Hegdish water, it's water that came from the Hegdish land. Yotzu Amayon Chus Lasada, once the water goes out the field, Mutalan is now he may benefit from it. Arobo Agdela, Bisday, Hegdish. What if a willow tree grows in a Hegdish field? We should not benefit, but we do not violate Mila. Elon shall hedge it, an individual tree. Hasoma, which is adjacent, will stay Hegdish to a Hegdish field, and its roots. Yetzin go, into the Hegdish field. If there are up to 16 amas between them in the field, then the roots in the Hegdish field may not be used. But if it's more than 16 amas, then there is Mila. Elon shall hedge a Hegdish tree near a regular field, and its roots go into the field. If it was in 16 amas, there is Mila. 
Yamath. It's more than 60 numbers. Ace and Ashrashim Shrib Sech, they headed, like Nebel, and then those roots that go into the private field, one may not benefit from it, but still there is no violation of Mi'ilah. In the Gemara, Baba Basri explains that when roots are less than 16 cubits from the base of a tree, they derive their nurture from the tree. But if they're more than 16 cubits away, then the nurture from the tree is minimal, and the majority of the, of the nurture is derived from the land. So therefore, if the land is consecrated, then the roots are considered as the products of consecrated properly, which is why we want to know if it's more or less than 16 amas from the tree. Zion Cain, Shebereish, or Shel Hegdish. When there is a nest at the top of a consecrated Hegdish tree, there's a tree that was consecrated, and at the very top of the tree, birds built a nest. Shebono Eise Ha'ef. Birds constructed this nest. They ate him from wood that they found, or they from herbage that they found, the nest does not grow from the tree. The nest is created by birds in the tree. Call Hakan, the entire nest, Ima basin with the egg shabe, in it, Ima frechem with the chicks. Hatsikhin the imam who need their mother, being that it is in a hegdish tree, a nan and bohemon should not benefit from it, because it's in a tree that belongs to hegdish. However, a nan, but if somebody does benefit, Laima, there's no meila here, because the tree did not produce the nest. The tree is only housing the nest. On the other hand, what if somebody consecrates a whole forest? When you consecrate a forest, you consecrate everything in the forest, including nests. Mail and Bikulay, then whatever is in that forest is subject to Mila. Maybe Lonis, whether it's trees, maybe Chokay, Shabbat or the nest at the top of trees, and Shabbat or the nest between trees, because the whole forest belonged to him, and he consecrated and devoted the whole forest. Gizborim, Shashipu, Atse, Hegdish, Bikitsuism. What if the temple treasurers, they planed, that's a form of smoothing, consecrated trees and cut them down? Mailin, Baisam, or Aitsam, Akanim, then the prohibition against Mila does apply to those small pieces of wood, Shachosko, Meishakotsu, which were cut in the process. Abel, Ain, Mailim, but there is no Mila, Lay Bishipu, Ibelay Benesetis, Belay Benevia, Shalaitsim. There is not two slivers of wood, sawdust, or to the nevia of a wood. What is nevia? What we would call in our world a knot. Sometimes a wood has a knot in it. That hard body, which is round, it's in the tree, it looks like a wart. This is not going to be good for working with it. It's not a good piece of wood. So there is no meila in a knot as well. We have a rule in Torah which tells us that that slaves in general are compared in their halachic boundaries to real estate. The same law that applies to real estate applies to slaves. Being that there is no meila in real estate, if somebody sanctifies his slave, his servant, then, there is no prohibition of Meila to him or his hair. Even though his hair is fit to be cut and he has long hair and it's sellable. Because the hair is connected to the Ebed. And as long as it's connected, it improves the value of the Ebed. And the Ebed has no Meila because servants are compared to real estate, to landed property. If somebody plants fruits of Hegdesh, Produce of Hegdish, Zadon, he can redeem it when he plants it, and even if he didn't redeem it, and that which will grow, is every day produce, there's no principle in a fifth to be paid, they even have the obligation of challah, which can only be an obligation for personal property. So that because a new object grew from these fruits of Hegdish, that new object does not have the rules of Hegdish. Similar law, Yudbe Shemorim, sediments, shall Hegdish belonging to Hegdish, sediments are the thick pieces at the bottom of a barrel of wine. Sometimes you can put water on the sediments, let them sit, and voila, you have wine. Rishin, you do it a first time. Rishini, and then you do it again a second time. Rishini, you do it a third time. Because the sediments are so powerful, they will create, obviously, a lesser quality of wine, but wine, nevertheless. Also, Hannah's by one may not benefit, because the sediments belong to Hegdish. So this man-made wine belongs to Hegdish, too, because it is flavored by the sediments. And then, nevertheless, if somebody benefited, like Maul does not violate Mila. Revi, but if it's the fourth time around, he's using the same sediments to create a fourth batch of wine. Mutter, now it's already permissible. Because the sediments have all been consumed already in the first three batches. Mamed, when does this apply? If the sanctification of these sediments were made to the temple fund. Ah, well, but we're talking about something that was actually sanctified to the altar itself, and we know that wine was used for wine libation, so maybe it's sediments from wine. Whether it's the fourth or the fifth or the hundredth time around, the sediments are sacrifices, and anything derived from them are considered belonging to the altar. Somebody consecrates a hen to the altar. So now you have an altar hen. Hens are never offered as sacrifices. There is with the hen, and the egg that it will lay. What if somebody consecrates a donkey for the altar? Again, we talked about the fact that if somebody consecrates a hen or a donkey or anything that's not capable of being brought as a sacrifice, you sell it. 
and you'd use the money for sacrifices. The meilah could take place in it and its milk. If the donkey gave milk, that's meal as well, because it belongs to the temple. If he sanctified doves to the temple pond, again, there's meilah with them and their eggs. Can they be explained? Now, we explained earlier that the garments belonging to the Kohanim, when they become old, what should be done with them? They should burn them, they should bury them. Various lessons that we learned earlier. They use them to make wicks for the menorah. So therefore, old garments of the priests that wore, became worn out, instead of making wicks with them, what if somebody used them? The fact is, they belong to the Holy Temple. And if you make personal use of them, you're violating Mila. However, if they're not old, worn out garments, but they're brand new garments, or they're active garments that are being used by Kohanim. So we learned an interesting rule earlier. The law of garments are, is that the Kohen may use them even for his own personal use. And therefore, there is no Mila. So the Kohen doesn't have to go crazy that he didn't use his garment for temple use, he used it for a minute. For personal use, there is the liberty of the Kohen to use it for personal use. Therefore, Mila would not apply. What about objects consecrated by non-Jews or even idol worshippers? non-Jews, if they consecrated it to the temple fund, then there is Mila, because a non-Jew can sanctify to the temple fund. But if they are sanctified to the altar, there is a problem. There is no Mila for sacrifices consecrated by a non-Jew. Which says with regard to sacrifices, speak to the children of Israel. But by rabbinic law, one certainly may not have any benefit whatsoever. Now, the closing law, Tezayin, 16. Trail. What about sound? If somebody's listening to music and enjoying it, is that called Mila? Umara, someone sees a view and is enjoying the view. Is that Mila? Vireach, or the aroma, shall Hegesh, all of the above belong to Hegesh. There is no permissibility to enjoy it. One should not be there. One may not benefit. But the law of Mila is not there either, because there's no substance. If he smelled and enjoyed the aroma of the incense burning after the initial ascent of the pillar of cloud of the incense, and the mitzvah was done, and now he's just enjoying the leftover aroma, then we say he shouldn't, but there's no meal. But if he enjoyed the aroma of the Torah as the pillar was ascending, Moab clearly he can and does prohibit, he does transgress and trespass, the mitzvah of meila. end of chapter 5. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis meila. the laws of misappropriation, of sacrifice or holy temple funds, trespassing, misusing, Hedek Shishi, chapter 6, as we wind down towards the end of meila and towards the end of this entire book of the service in the Beis Amigdash. Generally speaking, the laws of Mi'ilah are outlined in great detail in the Mishnah and in the Talmud tractate Mi'ilah. And the Rambam goes on to talk about something discussed in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, as are most of these laws. Yesh Devarim, there are certain items, certain things in life, that a person can make use of, and they will not become damaged or they will not have lesser value. For example, there are certain things that will last forever. You'll use them, you won't use them. They're not going to become diminished in value because somebody used them once. And here he gives an example. Somebody uses a pure gold utensil. You know, they unearth gold from thousands of years ago and it's worth a fortune. Gold is gold. Gold is not going to be diminished in value because somebody uses it. So therefore, the question is, if you don't diminish its value, how could you be liable for the transgression of Mila? Mila means you misappropriate. Here, you're taking a drink, for example, out of a golden cup, but the golden cup is not necessarily or necessarily not worth less than it was before you had a drink. Because gold is gold. There are other materials, there are other objects that do become damaged, they do become diminished. For example, garments, you wear a garment, you diminish its value. Items of silver, metal, silver, copper, brass, iron, these materials do diminish in value when they're used. So there are two distinct, different laws in the laws of Mi'ilah, between the one category that by nature it does not become diminished in value, how Mi'ilah 
is dealt with, and then there's another set of laws in items that do become diminished in value as to how me'ila is dealt with. If somebody enjoys at least the value of the lowest coin in Torah, the pruto, from consecrated properties, as we learned earlier, not connected to the ground, because the earth has no, the earth, real estate has no me'ila, and things connected to the earth have no me'ila. So if somebody enjoys at least a pruto's worth from a consecrated holy item that is not connected to the earth, so it depends which one of the above two categories this applies to. If he enjoyed something which using it does not cause it to be damaged. Again, for example, as mentioned above, he uses golden vessels belonging to the base Amigdash. Moal, he trespasses. Moal, he has become culpable, liable for misappropriation. Why? Because even though the golden cup he drank from, for example, the golden vessel he used, does not become damaged or diminished in value, but he enjoyed it. At least a fruit is worth. That's enough. What about the fact that he didn't do any harm to it? This kind of object does not require harm to be done to it in order for someone to be culpable for Mila. Because in general, all the use in the world will not diminish its value. So that's that category. The litmus test is, did you have benefit, at least a pruto's worth, and more? Now, the next category, what if somebody had enjoyment from an object belonging to the Holy Temple? And this kind of object does suffer damage when it's used. Today, for example, he wore garments that were consecrated for the Temple Fund, and he's walking around with these garments. You know, you wear a garment, you wear it out. There's a big difference between new garments and used garments. A boka bekardum, or he chopped wood with an axe, which was given to the temple fund. Axes become diminished in value as they are used. Moal, he does not become culpable for the transgression of me'ilo. We need to have several stipulations. Stipulation number one is he has to diminish the value of that object, whether it's the garment or it's the axe, at least a pruto. He has to diminish its value by using it. The next stipulation is, he has to have in mind that he wants to benefit from this. Stipulation number three is, he has to diminish its value, enjoy and benefit from it simultaneously. Which means that the diminishing of value and the enjoyment has to be in the same act. What if then he enjoyed it, only a half of Pluto's worth? And he diminished its value only only a half of Pluto's worth? Or he enjoyed the value of a Pluto. And he diminished the value of a Pluto of something belonging to Hegdish. But it was not the same thing. It was another object. He did not enjoy the same object that he diminished its value. He did not diminish the value of the same object that he enjoyed. He used something of the temple fund, diminishing the value of something next to it. It does not meet the requirements of the law. Because he did not diminish the value of the same object that he enjoyed, and he did not enjoy the same object which he diminished its value. Until he enjoys at least a pruta's worth of this object belonging to the Holy Temple. The Yibgen, and he has to diminish its value. Through that enjoyment, the value of a pruta in that object itself. And here the Rambam gives a beautiful example. Ketzad, for example, how does this work? Or as they used to say in Brooklyn, give me a for instance. He took a patch. We used to call when I was a kid, a latte. A latte is a patch. Not in Starbucks, a latte. A latte, a patch. He took a patch off a garment that belonged to the Holy and he took that patch and sewed it onto his garment. So now his garment, which desperately needed a patch, is patched. Well, the he wore it, and he enjoyed it. at least the is worth. So we have the aspect of benefiting and enjoyment because he could not walk around with a hole in his jeans. That was before it was in style to walk around with holes in your jeans. Today, the more holes you have, the more it's worth. But back then, when I was a kid, you have a hole in your jeans. Your mother gives you a patch. Not playing a latte. You have to put a patch on it. Okay. So so far so good. He benefited from an object belonging to the holy temple. But where did he put the damage? The damage was on the garment that he took the patch off of. The old pair of pants sitting, still sitting in the holy. He benefited from the patch, not from the pants that he damaged. Now, what did he do to the patch? The answer is nothing. The patch is perfectly good. He didn't harm the patch. This is not Mila. Because that which he harmed and that which he enjoyed are two separate objects. He harmed the old pants and he enjoyed the patch on his pants. Which he did not diminish value from. The technical transgression of the ilah does not kick in here. Because his benefit and enjoyment was in one object, specifically in our case, the patch. His diminishing of value and damage was in the other object, the, pure, the, the garment which the patch came from. 
Now, the Rambam adds here at the end of this paragraph that we've already established, that if somebody benefits and causes his friend to benefit, and together it makes the value of a pruta, mitzvah it combines, because we need the minimum of a pruta. Even over a lot of time, time is not a problem in the definition of mi'ilah. So that's paragraph one. This is a pretty complex issue, very interesting. Moving right along, base, kodshe, kodoshim, matters of the holy of holies, which are holy of holy sacrifices, for example, a burnt offering, a sin offering, a guilt offering, shetolash, mitzamram, where he went and removes wool from these animals that are holy of holy and they're not blemished, which means they themselves are going to be offered on the altar, and he took some wool off. As soon as he benefits at least a pruta's worth, he violates the mitzvah of Even though, listen, let's be honest. Or as they say, you be frank and I'll be earnest. He doesn't harm the value of this sacrifice by taking a little wool off. Because taking a little wool off, an animal is like utilizing a gold goblet. It remains the same value. Taking a little wool off, the coat of the animal does not cause it to become disqualified. And not permit you to offer it. You can offer it all the same. So therefore, he took a little wool off. You can still offer it. No harm done. If there's no harm done, then it goes into the no harm done department. Just like a gold cup, as long as you benefit from it, you violate. So also here, no harm done. You benefit it, you violate. Ah, well, however, now comes through one little detail, a whole change of scenario, and a whole change of halacha application. Enough of a what if this is an animal that cannot be offered on the altar because it became blemished? What do you do with an animal that was supposed to be offered on the altar which is blemished? You sell it. And with its money, you buy another animal. Being that this is now on the sale block. When the buyer is coming to inspect the animal and he sees a patch of wool torn out, uh-huh, I'm cutting the price, I'm, I'm, I'm diminishing my offer. Forget it, I'm reducing my offer. So being that he has brought harm to the value of the animal because it's for sale, so he does not become culpable for Mi'ilah until he benefits and diminishes with at least a pruta at the same, in the same act. What if the animal died, and we learned this scenario earlier, and then he took wool, hair off the animal, being that he benefited from, he does transgress the mitzvah of Mi'ilah, she'en pagam l'misah, on the one hand, there is no harming an animal after it dies. And we learned earlier that the whole Me'ila law cannot apply after it dies. So therefore, he points out here, this transgression of Me'ila is by rabbinic law. Because by biblical law, it does not apply. If somebody commits Me'ila, benefits, misappropriates, articles, which were consecrated for the improvement, fund of the temple, here's an interesting law. Once he inadvertently misappropriates, if he didn't intend to do it, but he did it anyway, the whole sanctity of the object has been removed. It loses its holiness. It becomes every day. What do you mean? How could something lose its holiness? When I went and donated uh, my, my cup to the temple funds, somebody goes and takes it inadvertently and uses it. The cup no longer belongs to the temple fund. The answer is, you're right. The man who took it is obligated to pay for it. The man who took it is obligated to make good on it by paying money. In addition to paying money, he has to pay a fifth. In addition to paying a fifth, he has to bring a sacrifice. But the cup is no longer the property of the holy temple. The cup belongs to the property of the guy who misappropriated it. What does he need to do? Make restitution. That's a special law in temple fund. This law does not apply to sacrifices. Again, if somebody commits me in objects which belong to the holy temple fund, being that he inadvertently committed this misappropriation, this halal eglish, the holy object becomes every day and loses its sanctity. And therefore, if I took this cup that once belonged to Hegdish, but I misappropriated it, and therefore I took it out of the Hegdish domain, my only obligation is to make restitution. So now it's my cup. I acquired a cup with this act. What about if I walk over to my friend and says, here, have a drink of this cup. It's a wonderful cup. Potter is exempt. Why? Because it's now my cup. Because my act of misappropriation took the cup out of the realm of the holy and put it into my domain. And I have the obligation to make restitution. This only applies when this transgression was committed in the classical manner Mi'ila is committed, which is inadvertently, accidentally. Because remember, the whole deal with Mi'ila, where somebody has to make restitution and pay a fifth and bring a sacrifice, is all in a case when it was done by accident. But, Moab is if this misappropriation was done intentionally, willingly, knowingly, the halach is different. You just have to make restitution. Being that never a sacrifice applicable because it was intentional. It's not easy to atone for the intentional. Sacrifices, by and large, do not atone for the intentional transgression. 
by and large, sacrifices atone for the inadvertent transgression. For the intentional transgression, we need heavy chuba, heavy repentance. So, by the same rule, the sacred does not become removed from it, being that it was an intentional violation, it remains the property of the sacred. So, using the example of this cup, if this cup is Hegdish, and I take the cup intentionally, I don't remove it from the sacred, and I give it to my friend and say, here, use the cup, have a drink, he violates as well. And if somebody comes and inadvertently violates, that's a classic case of Meila. When does this apply? If he committed Meila in the holy, and he took it as if it was mundane, and gave it to somebody else. If he benefited from it, and reduced its value, and did not give it to somebody else. Here's an object discussed at great length in the Mishnah. There could be Meila after Meila, which means one person can violate this prohibition, and then another person, and then another person, because it never leaves the domain of the holy. So if five people inadvertently use something that belongs to the holy temple, five people violate. That is in the realm of the temple fund. So again, the scenario is he benefited, he diminished its value, but he didn't give it to anybody else. Then he went home. Next guy comes, benefits, diminishes its value, and goes home. Even a thousand people will violate Meila because it's only giving it to someone else that takes it out of the temple fund ownership. However, there cannot be a violation of Meila. Following the violation of Meila, in the holy animal realm, sacrifices. Unless it's an animal, or a vessel of use for the holy. Take that for example. Banana, but What if he chopped with an axe belonging to Hegdish? He benefited a Puto's worth and he diminished the value of the ox. Oh, the axe. And then another person came. His friend came and chopped with this axe. Banana and benefited a Fogam and diminished. Kulam, although they all committed Meila. Not a la if he took the axe from the son of the and he gave it to his friend. He says, Here, have an axe. He commits Meila, but his friend does not, because he transferred ownership from the holy to his friend. Shosabakesh shows up, the other scenario of something that does not become damaged. He drank with a gold cup, banana and benefited at least a puta. Ovachaveri and his friend came, Bishosa, and drank banana and benefited. Ovachaveri and his friend came, Bishosa, banana and drank and benefited. They all commit transgression. They all commit misappropriation. Not a case. What if he takes the cup on the son of the Chaveri? Matona, he gave it as a gift to his friend, or he sold it to his friend. He sold a holy temple object to his friend. That's like the guy I know who sells the Brooklyn Bridge once a week to somebody. Makes a living. He trespasses, but his friend does not. Why? Because the fact that he gave it or sold it. So somebody takes it out of the ownership of the Holy Temple and he needs to make restitution. The second guy no longer has to make restitution. The second guy is a recipient of a bona fide gift. Or, other scenario, I, I mistranslated the very beginning of four, where I said, and I translated sacrifices, that's wrong. It's consecrated and sanctified items, such as an axe, not sacrifices. What if he was riding a donkey and the donkey is specifically used because a donkey is not an animal that can ever, God forbid, be sacrificed and a donkey is not a kosher animal. But somebody consecrated a donkey and gave it to the temple maintenance fund, which the temple maintenance fund will ultimately sell it. He benefited at least a puta's worth of Pogam and he diminished the value of the donkey. He put mileage on it, as we say in the rental business. He put mileage on it. And then his friend comes, and rode the donkey, and then benefited the Pogam and diminished its value. Then another friend comes, and rode on it, and then benefited the Pogam and diminished its value. Each one of these three committed Meila. Why? Because each one of these three is taking an object belonging to the temple, benefiting from it, diminishing its value, at least a puta. However, what if he gives the donkey to his friend? He says, here, I have a donkey. Maton has a gift. Hey, or he sold it. Better yet. Or he rented it. Hurts, rent the donkey. He violates Mila. But his friend, the recipient, does not. Also, somebody lends an axe belonging to the sacred. He commits misappropriation because of the benefit that he gets by giving something to somebody. Ah, I'm a nice guy. I gave you my axe. It's not your axe. Ah, but I, you didn't know that. His friend may use it to begin with because he removed it from the domain of the sacred by doing that. The same goes for an animal like the donkey. Now, moving right along, that was about items designated as temple fund contributions. But when it comes to sacrifices, the law is different. 
Ella, when it comes to sacrifices, yes, bomba, yolachan, yolachan, bomba. There could be the violation of meal and misappropriation once and twice and many times. Ketzat, for example. Tolash minachatas, he pulls hair, wool, off a sin offering. Obachaveri and his friend comes with tolash and pulls hair off the sin offering. Obachaveri and the third one came with tolash and pulls hair off the sin offering. Kula malu, the sin offering is still a sin offering, so they all commit meal. Bechain in the son of lachaveri, so also if he gave it to his friend, lachaveri lachaveri, and his friend gave it to his friend, kula malu, they all commit meal. Why? Because it's a sacrifice. Giving a sacrifice does not transfer ownership of the sacrifice from the sacred to the mundane. The Yerali, the Rambam says it appears to me that the law concerning meal offerings, the ayvus or bird offerings, the or libations, or klishores or ministering vessels in which things are put, kedina behemar like the law of the animals, shakul and kedushas agufei, they all retain sanctity of their essence body, and therefore no one can acquire it. It remains holy, and therefore there would be meila violation after meila violation. Bob six bahamas kolche hakadoshim shenopabumum. What, however, if the animal of the holy of holies developed a blemish? What do you do with this animal that develops a blemish? Hayovi and this opinion you redeem it and take the money and buy another animal. Harehi kikolche bedekabayis it now becomes like the sacred of the temple fund shikushas which becomes a financial sanctory and therefore it takes on the law we talked about earlier. Vehim the son of the chaveri if he gives it to his friend chaveri chaveri and the friend gives it to another friend harishim bilvagma as we said earlier only the first person trespasses. Zion seven Omru chachamim our sages declared in Meila page nineteen b shahnoitel eben if somebody takes a stone a kaina or a beam shall hegdish belonging to the sacred and we learned earlier that stones and beams are actually used by the sacred to repair the temple. They both trespass. They both commit misappropriation. However, in the scenario where it was in the domain of the temple treasurer who's in charge, and he takes it and gives it to the temple treasurer, being that it ends up in the hands of the same guy who had it, whom all only he commits but the gizbar, even though he received it, does not commit me. It appears to me, applies to an intentional misappropriation. because in that case the sacred does not become mundane. If somebody takes even a pruta's worth of the holy, thinking it's his, he does not commit until he uses it for something personal. Until he gives it to someone else to give, because that gift giving is a benefit. The son of the he gave it to his friend, whom he trespasses. His friend does not. Because in other realms of the holy, there is no meila after meila. Commissioner as we explained, similarly with all other applicable. Items. If he took a stone or a beam of the holy lemal, he does not commit meal. Because just taking it doesn't mean he used it. Remember, he has to benefit from it. So he took it, but he didn't benefit from it. But if he built it into his house, that's meal. He took an object belonging to the holy and used it for construction in his house. What if he just placed it on top of the window in the room, but he did not connect it, install it? He does not commit meal. Until he receives benefit by dwelling under it. At least the fruit is worse. Because otherwise it's not a recognizable benefit, the fact that it sits there. Interesting case 9. If he took a coin. Of Hegdish, on the son of the Balon, and he paid, he gave it to the spa, he gave it to the bathhouse attendant. So now he has a paid spa. Even though he didn't use it, he commits me. Why? Well, all he did is he gave it to somebody. Because he can benefit, because he can now take a spa bath anytime he wants to. So he already benefited because he has a credit. The same applies whether he gave it to any other craftsman for payment of services, a barber, and so on and so forth. Even though they didn't do his deed yet, but he has the credit, and he can have them do it anytime. Yud, now we are going to be learning, with God's help, when we get to that section, very detailed laws about what it takes to acquire something in Jewish law. Just in very general terms, we're told, Dvar Torah, that by Torah law, when you pay money, you have acquired the object. But our sages instituted that that's not enough. Our sages instituted we should also take the object and drag it or lead it into our possession called Mashiach. And therefore he says, if he used this money to buy an object, but he did not draw the article after him, as our sages require rabbinically, he still, I'm sorry, if this purchase was made from a non-Jew, then he commits meal because in the case of a non-Jew, we say that cash transfers. But in the case of a Jew, our sages instituted that cash alone is not sufficient. There should be transfer of ownership. Dragging the item, like Mali does not commit meal. If somebody spends holy money on his own needs, taking its everyday money, he takes the sacred money and goes to Ralph's and goes shopping. 
for himself. Even though he didn't yet spend it for mundane objects, Moal, he commits Milaketa, for example. He brings his sin offering, his guilt offering, his paschal offering from the sacred, which means he takes sacred funds and with it buys a sin offering. He didn't realize it was sacred funds. He takes sacred funds and buys a guilt offering, buys a paschal offering. If somebody became impure, immersed in a mikvah, and is still missing that one sacrifice, which will kick him back into the realm of the pure, he bought that sacrifice using public funds, using hegdish, sacred funds, Moab, that is a classic case of the law, even though he used it for holy objects, but he used it for holy objects that he is obligated to bring. There can't be me'ila based upon the many principles espoused earlier. The blood of that particular sacrifice will be sprinkled on the altar. Because before that we said me'ila does not kick in. Therefore, I may be menachas if somebody brings me offerings and resachim and libations. Thanks offering me not hegdish, using inadvertently temple funds. Even though clearly he commits a transgression, it's not his money. He doesn't commit the technical me'ila. Because in all the above scenarios, meal offerings, wine libations, toll the bread, there is no blood dashing to kick in that event. You know that everybody has to give a half shekel once a year. What if he gave the shekel from holy money inadvertently used holy temple funds for his obligation of half shekel? When the tumor, the gifts to the half shekel fund will be given. And they will purchase from it. What are these half shekel funds used for? We learned this earlier in great detail. They're used to purchase communal sacrifices. Even when one communal sacrifice is purchased, and they used to purchase thousands, the Yazorik, Doma, and his blood will be dashed. The one who gave inadvertently this shekel will have committed Because even in the scenario where they only used that fund to buy one animal, that's enough. They sprinkled the blood of that one animal, and he has now violated because his half shekel was given with consecrated funds. You'd give him a mafish What if he took and set aside his shekel and he used it for other things? Ben who, whether he did Ben Chaveri or another, his friend Moali commits Mila, because this was a shekel of the temple fund. The son of the Chaveri gave it to his friend the Shakla to give a shekel. And the friend went and gave it not for him as he was told, but he gave it for himself. If the monies had been taken to buy sacrifices, we learned that that was taken in three different events. But if they already did one of those three taking events in the shekel department, Moal HaShekel, then the one who does it, the one who gave that shekel, commits Mila. Why? Because we learned earlier in great detail in the laws of Shkolim that when they did that, Ritual of setting aside Shkolim for temple sacrifices. They give it for those who already donated and for those who will donate. So he goes into the will, no, will donate department. Commissioner Bionor Bishkolim, as we explained in Shkolim. Okilo Higiyat Shekel Zelelishkas, as if it already was delivered to the office. There is Mila, because specifically, when they take and take an offering of Shekels, they include the futuristic donors. He's a futuristic donor. But they did not yet take that ritual of Shkolim and buy offerings with it. He does not commit Mila. Now, we learned that they do that once and twice and three times. There are three offerings. From the Shkolim fund. What if there was funds left after the three offerings? Then there is not Meila because once the third batch of money set aside for the purchase of communal sacrifices was separated, the remainder of the money was considered, in a sense, ordinary funds. End of chapter 6. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Meila, as we wind down toward the end of the laws of Meila and toward the end of Sefer Avoda or Ho'avoda. Peter Shvi, chapter 7. Continuing in the detailed complex laws of Meila. Many, if not all, based upon the Mishnah and the Gemara of Meila. Mi Sheshogag Velokach Hegdesh. If somebody inadvertently, accidentally took something belonging to the sacred, a mois hegdish, or money belonging to the sacred, and he gave it to a proxy, he gave it to an agent of his. He gave it to his employee. He gave it to another person. To spend it, as if it was his own money. Because it was an accident. He didn't realize it was sacred money. So he says, here is a dollar. Go buy me a Diet Coke. You think they had Diet Coke back then? Probably. If the agent did what he was asked to do, he went and bought the Diet Coke. Because that's what the guy asked him to do. Then the one who sent him is guilty, is liable for me. Because the agent, he was just an agent. What if he said, never mind, I'm not buying you a Diet Coke. He went and bought himself a regular Coke. He hates diet. So he bought himself a regular Coke. He did what he wants to. Not fulfilling the wishes of the one who sent him. So now we have the agent committed Mila. Because the agent is the one that inadvertently took Holy Temple money. And here he gives an example. If the... Owner, so to speak, the man says to his agent, if the host says to the guy who works for him, give that meat to my guests, and that meat ended up being holy temple meat, temple fund meat, he says, give everybody a burger, or give everybody a hot dog. 
Polach, Kikar, what if the agent went and instead of giving them a hot dog, like his man told him, he gave them a bun, he gave them bread. What if he said, Kikar, give them a loaf of bread, but instead he gave them meat. What if he said to his agent, I want you to bring me that meat from the window. I guess they used to use window as refrigerators because it was cold outside. Close the window, it's cold outside. And if I close the window, it'll be warm outside. So he says, bring me the meat from the window. The heavy lemon on Migdal, and instead he brought him meat from the closet, from I guess the refrigerator. He said to him, bring me from the closet. He brought him from the window. In all of the above cases, it is the agent who commits Mila because he did not follow instructions. The same goes for any other scenario. But if the agent went and brought from the window, like he was told to, even though the one who sent him said, Window? I didn't mean the window. I meant the closet, which means he didn't say what he means. Balabai is still. He said it. The host commits Mila. Because the agent did what he was told to do. But what if you believe in these laws, unlike many other laws we learned earlier, in these laws, the matters on your heart mean nothing. Don't count. Furthermore, and even if the agent was a deaf mute or mentally incompetent or a mind, because we really they can't, because we really they can't be responsible agents. As long as the agent did that which he was told to do, the host commits me law. But if the agent did not fulfill his task, he did not do his mission, then the host is exempt. Next example, this plot thickens. If he says to his agent, I want you to give a piece, a piece, one piece of meat to every one of my guests. One burger to every one of my guests. The agent went to and said to them, Here, take two burgers, take two burgers. So the agent is doubling up on what the host told him to do. The host said one burger, he said, take two burgers. He's a nice guy. So the host commits me law. Because his words were done. The agent is exempt. Because all he's doing is adding rather than changing his mission. For adding to the mission, he does not commit me law. However, the agent said, I'm telling you two. He said one, but listen to me. I'm the man. I'm telling you take two. Now they both violated because he clearly took responsibility upon himself. Not What if the host said, take one hamburger? The agent said, take two. The guests took three. They're not stupid, huh? In this case, even the guests committed Mila. So you have three tra- transgressions of Mila. Because each one did the mission of the one who sent them. And then added on their own. So they're both culpable. Because the mission was accomplished. The mission was not uprooted. And he clearly made it clear that he's adding. When these hamburgers, these pieces of meat were of the holy of the temple fund. However, if it was sacrifices we're talking about, meat of sacrifices, all bets are off, everything changes. If it was the meat of a burnt offering or anything like that, only the one who ate is culpable. Because he's culpable for an additional, maybe bigger problem than the Yilam. Because he's eating a sacrifice. Now that Rabbam says in general terms, we do not have messengers when it comes to sins. You can't say somebody told me to do it. When it comes to Yilam, there is a shliach. So therefore, no other prohibition can be involved with it. Gimel. If somebody gives a coin from the holy, from the sacred to his agent, and he says to him, listen up, he says, take this coin and use half of it to bring me candles. And with the other half of the coin, bring me wicks. What if he took the whole coin and brought candles? He took the whole coin and he brought wicks. He said to him, bring me with the whole coin candles, or with the whole coin wicks. They're both exempt. The original sender, who he refers to here as the Balabayas, the owner, does not commit Mila, because his mission was not carried out with this Pluta, because he told him specifically what to do and he didn't do it. And the agent does not commit Mila, because he did not uproot his mission with this Pluta. But if he said to him, use half the Pluta to bring me candles from one place, and with the other half of the Pluta, bring me wicks from another place, and he switched the places of the wicks and the candles, here the Shaliyah commits Mila, not the one who sent him. Dalid Nasan Lishte Prutas, what if he gave him two coins? The Amalayan he told him two Pruta coins and he told him, Listen, my friend, Havay Li Esrig, bring me an Esrig. And he brought him for one Pruta, an Esrig. And with the other Pruta he brought him a pomegranate. 
He gave him two prutas and said, bring me an esrog. He brought him an esrog for one pruta and a pomegranate for the other. Hashaliach ma. The agent commits me'ilah because he went and did something original. He got a one pruta esrog and a one pruta pomegranate, whereas the guy who sent him told him to get him a two pruta esrog. Period. And the owner... The one who sent him is exempt. Because we know there are different prices to esrog, and he told him to get a more expensive esrog, and he didn't do it. Therefore, but if the esrog that he brought for one pruta was in fact valued at two prutas, he got a bargain. In this case, they both committed meila. One, the host for the fact that he used holy temple money to get an esrog of two prutas, and the agent who got a pomegranate with one pruta. If somebody sends his agent with a pruta that belongs to Hegdish, to purchase an object from him, and the owner, the guy who sent him, said, oh, as they say in texting language today, OMG, oh my God, this is sacred money, and he remembered before it got to the storekeeper. So therefore, he no longer can be doing anything inadvertent, because he knows. Only the agent could be committing me'ila. Because he is still inadvertent. He's still not knowing, but the one who sent him remembered, me'ila in its full strength can only be in a case when you don't know. Never is an intentional violation of Mila ever obligated to bring a sacrifice for the fifth. Commission beyond as we explained. If in the process, even the agent remembered the Yodashi had this and he realized that it was sacred funds. Before he got to the storekeeper, Shnei Abdurim, because Mila they're both exempt from bringing the sacrifice. Now, here is a very difficult and tricky situation. Now, being that the one who sent him realized it belongs to Hegdish, the agent realized it belongs to Hegdish, the only one that doesn't know that it belongs to Hegdish is the storekeeper. The storekeeper might be culpable, will be liable. When he spends that pruta, which is a hendish pruta, which became mixed up in his monies. Because the storekeeper is now doing all of this without knowledge. Which is a big problem. How do you be a storekeeper? But if they told the storekeeper that the coin they gave him was hendish, they're all three exempt. And the object that they bought become consecrated because they bought with hendish money. So now everybody gains and nobody loses. Or nobody loses. Now we go back to the problem. <coughs> what should be done in order to save the storekeeper from sin? We have a coin here, a pruta amongst many. It ended up in the cash register. How do you recognize which pruta is the meila pruta? How do we save the storekeeper from sin? The answer is we follow the following directions. You take a coin which belongs to somebody, to the, to the person, a, a mundane everyday coin, a non-holy coin, a kli or a vessel kolshu. A value will be there, and you say, Pruta shall head this. You make a declaration, and you say, I do declare that this Pruta coin, which belongs to the sacred, wherever it is, is exchanged for this coin, which can be done. Now, this coin, or this vessel worth, or at least the coin of a Pruta, becomes a holy. The storekeeper is not permitted to use the balance of his money in the cash register. And so also, Pruta shall head this if a Pruta coin of the sacred which got mixed up in the entire purse. There's a purse full of money, and in there is a sacred coin. The same thing can apply. Aisha Omar already said, Pruta bikizeh, hegdesh, a Pruta in this purse is sacred. Mechal he exchanges it, and then he can use the keys. If he used it, and does not exchange, you can always say that the hegdesh coin is the last coin. And therefore he does not violate this transgression until he comes to the last coin. Who is to say that the last coin is not the hegdesh coin? Zayin seven Omar, if he said, the guy had a lot of purses, and he said, kis mikisei hegdesh, I declare that one of my purses is sacred. He didn't say which one. Or, next scenario, an ox of my oxen, I declare, is sacred. And now we have no way of identifying which ox or which purse. He himself doesn't know. So, in a situation where maybe, maybe, they're all kind of holy. So how do you undo this? The answer is, if you use them all, you've committed me'ilah. If you've used only some of them, you've committed me'ilah. It's a problem. You we got a problem. The person is forbidden to use some of the purses, some of the oxen, surely all of them, because he doesn't know which one is consecrated. So no matter which purse or ox he takes, it's possible that he's taking the consecrated one. So we've got problems here. So what do we do? 
What does he do? Maybe it's like all the best thing is. And this follows the principle established earlier. He takes the biggest ox. He takes the most valuable purse. And he says, If this is the one that was sacred, it's sacred. And if it's not the one, but a lesser value one, a smaller one was hegdish, then the hegdish purse or the hegdish ox, wherever it is, is exchanged for this. We cannot benefit from the smaller purses or the smaller oxen. So this is a wonderful way to deal with this issue. He can say, Hegdish, Hegdish, come out, come out wherever you are. And you now are this purse or this ox. Now we've been talking about that Mi'ila, misappropriation has to be done with the minimum value of a pruta. If somebody commits Mi'ila, less than the value of a pruta. Whether intentionally and wantonly, or inadvertently, what he only has to do is make restitution of the principle. But all the other details of Mi'ila, DNA do not apply. He's not obligated to pay the fifth, but like carbon or the offering, the sacrifice, which is the Asham Mi'ila. Because the Asham Mi'ila is only obligated to be brought if it was more than a puta inadvertently less than a puta or intentionally never has the chaymish and never has the osham it appears to me that even in the case of the intentional wanted transgression of using holy temple funds and there were witnesses there who said you can't do this if you do it you can get lashes it doesn't make sense as for lashes to be given in a case where the entire misappropriation did not meet the value of a puta test 9 what if somebody gives holy money to somebody to watch and the one who is watching it use them he spent it. Malabayas more than he, the one who does that, the one who's supposed to guard it, and instead spent it, commits Mila. Why? Because when you give somebody money to guard, they're not allowed to use the money. They're either doing you a favor in guarding, that's called the Shomer Chinam, or they're being paid to guard it, that's called the Shomer Sacher. And we're going to learn the details of those laws in the future, in that section. One thing is for sure, that when you have somebody guarding your money, they're not allowed to use it. There's only one situation where you can give somebody money and they can use it, and that is if you lend them the money. Because Milva, because loans are given to use. But when I say to you, keep an eye on my money, that's not for use. And the one who owns this object did not grant him permission to use it. What if he banked them with a banker or a storekeeper? They were not signed with a particular mark. They were not bound with a particular bond, which means they are not identifiable. When somebody deposits something in a bank or gives it to a storekeeper, he's doing it with the intent that the banker, for example, when you deposit money in a, in a bank, in a savings account, in a checking account, the bank's about to use your money. When you come and demand the money, they're supposed to give you the money. But they don't have to hold your money. That's why, uh, God forbid, in the Depression, when there was a run on the banks, the banks closed. Because banks never have all the money. They lend it out to other people, and that's how they make money. So a bank is allowed to use money. He may see uh, if the storekeeper or the banker used it. They're both exempt. The owner of this money is exempt. Because he never said use it. He just gave it to him. The storekeeper is exempt. Because they were not in a, se- in a special marking, in a special bag. If it was in a special marking or a separate special bag, it would almost be like coming into a bank and putting something in a safety deposit box. But this was a deposit. So therefore, Allah is... That the storekeeper is exempt. The owner is exempt. What if a woman comes into a marriage with certain monies and some of that money is holy money, sacred money? Or someone bequeathed money to her and he died. And unbeknownst to her, there were some sacred funds there as well. The deal is that when a woman brings money into the marriage, the principle belongs to her, but the husband can use the, the product, the fruit, the profits. He can utilize it and make money. There are various ways this works. There's which we learned in great detail. But the fact is that now the husband is using money Belonging to the Holy Temple Fund, which he's not aware of. When the husband spends this money together with his own, Yimal, he commits me'ila, end of chapter 7.